listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 72. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. More than anything, this show is home to honest conversations between real people. We're not trying to sell you anything. We're not trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. We're not trying to get you stressed out over stupid life hacks or anything like that. Instead, it's a space to just be real, to take a deep breath and talk about all the behind the scenes stuff that I personally think isn't talked about enough, like our fears, challenges, and insecurities, our secret dreams, how it really feels to try and make changes in your life, what happens when you don't accomplish a goal, and just the day-to-day truths of being human in a crazy world. As your host, it's so much fun for me to sit down with everyone from athletes, writers, and entrepreneurs, to parents, coaches of all kinds, world travelers, adventurers, artists, activists, the list goes on and on, and to then bring those conversations to you. And fair warning real quick that this is an adult podcast, which means that we often cover adult topics and use adult language. My hope for you as a listener of the show is that it makes you laugh, think, and just feel less alone. Because honestly, that's all that I ever want, to know that I'm not alone. Something else that's unique about this show is that it's 100% community supported, which means no ads, no sponsors, and no outside influence. Just us here together sharing stories. The show is made possible by listeners like you, awesomely generous people who have pledged $8 or more per eight-episode season. To do this, we use a platform called Patreon, and not only does your support keep the show going, but it also earns you access to over 30 hours of exclusive bonus content, with new content added every single month. In addition to the fun bonus content, you'll also have the opportunity to be featured on an upcoming outro, you'll be able to help shape the future of the show, you'll be able to chat with me and other like-minded people on the community's private feed page, and you'll even be able to access my popular weekly email series called Notes of Grit and Grace, which is only available to Patreon supporters. So for all of that, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our community members who joins me for a quick and hilarious game of Would You Rather and shares what it's like behind the scenes in our Patreon community. So if you believe in this Real Talk revolution, like I do, and if you're in the position to be able to support the show, I can't tell you how much that would mean to me. Thank you so much for your support. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Laren Alta. Laren is a spiritual teacher and mentor known for burning down the stale, fluffy, boring self-help formulas and helping women ignite true spiritual liberation. Her workshops, retreats, and one-on-one intensives have been called transformation temples for unruly, soulful women. She works with women whose lives have crossed what she calls a shatter point, illness, bankruptcy, abuse, divorce, miscarriage, a moment when their world fell apart and they realized the money, the status, the degrees, and the happily ever after promises that they worked so hard for didn't matter as much as they thought they did. If you were to read her resume, it would include Microsoft, nonprofits large and small, as well as a five-year stint as a Mac makeup artist. But what should really be on that resume are the 23 countries where she studied healing in backwater ashrams, jungle temples, and mountain monasteries, working with spiritual teachers, medicine women, and shamans from all faiths and spiritual paths to learn about trauma, healing, and transformation. 
In this episode, we talk about everything from why Laren is decidedly not a people pleaser to the dangers of what she calls spiritual arrogance and so much more. She shares stories and impactful moments from her many travels. She talks honestly about why she dropped out of college, how it felt to go against the expectations of others, the power of meditation in her life, as well as what she's gained by being a bold woman who embraces trauma's role in healing and growth. We talk about her spiritual evolution. We talk about why we both love taking baths. And we talk about the power of creating your own magic and luck. Laren is so delightful, not to mention wise and honest, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Awesome. We are good to go. Lovely Laren, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. So here is what I want to talk about first. We have not met in person yet, but of so many photographs that I have seen of you online, your earring game is so strong. <laughs> Talk to me about this incredible collection of huge earrings that you have. I love big jewelry. I love big earrings in particular. I think part of it's because I have no hair. And so it's my favorite statement piece. But I just, I'm obsessed with big, big earrings. I don't know where it came from necessarily or when it started, because even when I did have hair, I would wear big earrings. But it's just my favorite, my favorite way to make a statement in the world is big earrings. I like kind of simple clothes and then a big earring. Yeah, I also, I love really big hoop earrings um, that I feel like my grown-up woman, grown lady purchase for 2017 is going to be ones that are not like the $2 fake gold <laughs> ones from Claire's at the mall, you know, that like turn all kinds of weird colors. I can't tell you how many of those I've gone through. And so this might be the year that I buy actual gold earrings. We'll see. Ooh, fancy. I support it. I support it. Yeah, the big earrings. That is super fun. Something else, this might be a totally strange question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, So again, in just like seeing photos of you online and just like hearing you on um, like other things, you project so much confidence. And I feel like that's something Mm -hmm. that is one, incredible. And two, that people struggle with a lot. Like, is that an inherent thing? Have you always been really confident or where did that come from? Thank you. I I have honestly been confident all of my life and, and kind of in a way that I was, so I'll tell a story that may model this. My, my stepfather and mother got married when I was 15, but I'd known my stepfather before that because we went to the same church and he was friends with a friend of mine's mother. And so we would hang out when I was hanging out with my friend and we would, I remember one time we went on this like walkathon for some cause. And years later, he was like, you were the most awkward child. You were so pigeon toed and just flailing all over the place. And you didn't, but I had no idea. I was still confident. I thought I was walking great. I had like, he was like, I thought you were going to fall over yourself. You were so pigeon toed. I thought you were going to step on yourself. But I had no idea. And I think that speaks really to my confidence that even when I was younger, I had no sense of awkwardness or a sense of how other people perceived me. I didn't care. I wasn't invested in it. It didn't matter to me. And so I think my sense of confidence has evolved over the years because I was never invested in looking good or being seen as valuable or acceptable or by anybody else. I just got a lot of encouragement at home to be who I was. And I took it and ran. I never was ever a conformist, um, which had its own kind of 
awkwardness in its own ways, but I never felt like I always, sometimes I felt like I didn't belong. Like I was a, on the outside of a lot of things, but I never was invested in belonging in a particular way. So I just created my own, my own circles. So that, that feeling of being on the outside of things, it sounds like that was sort of, I mean, I don't know if it was a conscious choice, but like, do you feel like you're rebellious? Like, is that a word that rings true with you? I used to say rebellious. And and then I realized that it's not rebellion because rebellion to me is about pushing against something that's a norm, a standard and expectation. So I'm rebelling against something. What feels more true for me is that I'm just true to myself. I'm just really honest about who I am, what I believe, what I think, what I'm obsessive about, what I'm passionate about, what I want, and trying to do anything else. Um, so it's not like I'm pushing against something. I'm just really focusing on on me. Mm. So, uh, okay, another question then. This is going to be such a good conversation. <laughs> I'm like so stoked already to talk to you. I'm like, yes, we're going to go there. We're going to talk about everything. <laughs> good. Um, so this feeling of, you know, being kind of invested in what's true for you and projecting confidence, how does that bump up against receiving criticism? Because something, I mean, this is just personally, I've been thinking a lot lately about, you know, the people who say, you know, I don't care what other people think or, you know, whatever kind of have that chip on their shoulder, aggressive thing about it, which I mean, I guess if that's true, good for them. Like, I I wish that was more true for me, but I do care. Not necessarily as a lack of confidence, but I mean, when someone says something that's not nice about you or your work, like that hurts. I'm I'm not a robot. I have feelings. So I'm curious kind of how that plays out for you in your life. Being so confident, how do you respond to, I don't know, criticism or negativity? Yeah, I think it's twofold. So one, I'm super crystal clear that I'm not for everybody. So I'm not expecting everybody in the whole world to love me or like me. I'm very um, opinionated. I'm strong-willed. I'm focused. And I'm not a people pleaser at all. I never have been. And so I know that in a culture that values people pleasing, particularly women, um, pe- people pleasers, that I'm not going to jive well with everybody. That I'm So, so I don't even have that expectation that I'm going to fit into everybody's uh, like list. And then the other piece is the people, Alex Brandon recently published a book and I shared a story in there that was about, her book is about criticism. And I shared a story in there about being criticized. And it, and my story was about someone who I grew up with, who I call a brother, who I was, who's a year and a half older than me, who we were raised together in this community in Seattle. And I'm because I've been irreverent. I would say irreverent more than rebellious my whole life. I've just done what I wanted to do and followed my own North Star, essentially. I, I've been um, paces ahead a lot of, of a lot of my peers. For example, I, I left, I went out of the country for the first time in the eighth grade, and I've been to 23 countries since. And some of my peers are accomplished in other ways. So a lot of people I grew up with have graduate degrees, PhDs, masters, um, or doctors, lawyers, all that kind of gig. But I also dropped out of college twice. And when I dropped out of college and I was like, I'm going to go to India, I'm just going to hang out and, and go see the world. I, this brother said, called me and, and I, and said, you know, Laren, I just want to tell you that he's very somber. I just want to tell you that we're very worried about you. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought he was joking, Nicole, for years. 
I thought because he, he would say these things over time. I, I were worried about you. What are you running away from? Um, why can't you just stay here and build a family like everyone else? Why can't you just finish college? Why can't you just nail down a job and stay in this and do what basically everything else was doing? What this norm? And that was the kind of criticism that literally took me maybe eight years to realize that he wasn't joking because he would say it so often. I thought he was kidding. I thought he saw me. Um, and he didn't. And that kind of criticism was painful because I felt like someone who I knew and loved just didn't see me mm-hmm. and was trying to put me in a box instead of just saying, who are you? What do you bring to the world? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting to watch the reactions of other people based on any choice that you make that's outside of like the, like you said, the norm, right? Whatever coloring Mm -hmm. in the lines looks like. Anything you do outside of that, it's interesting to watch like who it's threatening for. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you have an idea? Uh, Yes. (laughs) I wanted to be a supermodel. I wanted to be Miss Universe. I wanted to own a clothing store. And then as I got older, I wanted to be an anthropologist for um, National Geographic. Okay, so those things are not the same. (laughs) And I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write books. So the supermodel thing is interesting. Where did that come from? Did someone give you that idea? Or like who modeled for you that that was, hey, this is a career. I could do this. I, when I tell you, I have, so I have an obsessive, trait. I get, when I love something, I love it with all of every ounce of my being. Me too. (laughs) It's, it feels good. I love loving things. And so I loved, um, modeling. I had in the seventh grade, I, and I remember this because it was a seventh grade and I had a subscription to seven fashion magazines and not like there wasn't a teen Vogue at the time. So it was like L self Vogue, you know, like, and I would read them ravenously. I had a, and I would record um, MTV's House of Style with Cindy Lauper on VHS tape and watch them back to back to back. No one planted that my, I come from a family of educators. So this was like the most bizarre behavior to them. They had no idea where this is coming from, why I thought (laughs) this wasn't a valuable thing to spend my time on. I would record beauty pageants and watch them and study them. And then I started doing beauty pageants and hired a pageant coach. It was just this obsession. (laughs) That's so funny. Okay, so then that makes me want to ask, what other obsessions, you know, temporary or otherwise, would you say have been a big part of your life? Mm, So the next, I was obsessed with Janet Jackson. She was my first, I think, crush, my first, like, I'm going to put all my attention on this as in terms of people. Um, I was upset with crisscross. Do you remember them from? Oh yeah. Yes. I had this very tiny room and I had 52 posters of them on my wall. Like the entire room was covered with posters. <laughs> I, uh, I got- listen, I had a, I had that with Titanic when I was really in seventh grade. Yeah. I saw it seven times in the theaters, I think. Um, it's a long movie. It's a lot of time to spend in the movie theater, like as a child, just crying. I was very, I was very angsty. I was like in love with this boy. It was very traumatic. <laughs> yeah, that's a good parallel. That's a good. I just had a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of Titanic. I clipped out everything from the magazines. My whole room was covered. This, I feel like this movie gets me. <laughs> now I'm just like, really? Titanic? Like that's. I, that's how I feel about Crisscross. Like, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's been. You know, I when I was in college, I I had pictures of Erica Badu 
ripped out from magazines, but then I laminated them all. I went to Kinko's and laminated them and put them on my walls. I upped my obsession game and then it became travel. And I was just really passionate about seeing the world and its people. And, and I did most of that by myself. I just left and went to see what I wanted to see. Mm, okay. Well, we're definitely going to dig into that later, but <laughs> so from, you know, the practicing to be a supermodel, right. And then on up, um, <laughs> my first question, what was your first paying job? Well, babysitting, yeah, um, because that was just the lowest hanging fruit. But my first real job where they took taxes out was I was 14 years old and I wanted my own pocket money. And I went to, there was a store down the street, a, cl- a consignment store called the Models Closet because it was owned by Seattle's, one of Seattle's most successful African-American models. And I went in and I said, I need a job. And she said, well, we're not hiring right now, but leave me your name. And then she called me like a month later and hired me. And I worked there from 14 to 17 every Saturday. That was my first job. So these days when someone asks you what you do, how do you respond? I say I've been trying to figure it out because my work is so intangible. But um, I say I run workshops, retreats, and one-on-one intensives that help women strengthen their connection to their soul. Hmm, That's a beautiful description. Thank you. Tell me your why behind this work. Why is it interesting to you? Why are you well suited for it? Mm. I feel like we're taught, we as a culture, we as women in particular, to swallow who we are, to soften our edges, to mute down and blend in. And so much of our truth is lost. So much of who we actually are is lost. And we try to conform into these expectations of what a woman is, what a girl is. And so my work is really about reclamation, soul reclamation and soul reconnection, because it's not that the soul ever goes anywhere. It's just that when we start focusing on the car or the job or the status or the relationship or anything external to validate our sense of ourselves, to make us feel powerful or confident or worthwhile, we lose that awareness of who we actually are. And it's, it, I don't believe that that actually has anything to do with who we actually are. Those are fun. Those are great. But in this sense of, in this culture of more and more and more bigger, faster now, we lose who we are without having to do anything bigger or faster and that the now is enough. And so my work is about helping women connect with who they are right now with love and acceptance. Yeah. And what is it about you? I don't know whether it's like a skill or behavior. What is it about you that kind of draws you to do this? Why do you think you're good at it? Mm. I think part of one, the biggest piece is this is just what I was born to do. I didn't really choose it. I didn't really um, set out to do it at all. It's just part of my natural gifts and skill set that I came into this world with. Um, And the other part is it's something I've developed over time, uh, intentionally and unintentionally. So I grew, I was born with the, the raw skills. And then I grew up in a household that required a lot of listening, that required me to figure out how to navigate a really toxic, violent person. And how to still hold space because it was my younger sister. So I had to learn how to be a good older sister with someone who was violent and abusive. Um, and so that developed. And by the time I got to college, there's a longer story, but I, I 
loved open mics and went to an open mic and went to open mics for many years and was tired of going to open mics where women would just tell stupid poems. And not to say that they weren't talented poets, but all the poems were about like, he licked my earlobe and my body melted. And just, and I was like, I know these women have something else to say. So I decided to create an all women open mic. And that's where kind of the convergence of my natural gifts, my skill set came together to learn how to hold space for women who needed to tell their truth. And that's what my open mic became. It became a, um, a sanctuary of healing because in the first open mic, after people had said poems and did dances and did all these things, someone came to the mic and said, I don't have a poem to share. I don't have anything, a story to read, but I have herpes and I don't know where else to talk about it. Oof. So you felt, it sounds like kind of a profound shift in having an all female space. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's interesting. That Absolutely. reminds me, I was just um, re-listening to, um, do you listen to Another Round, the podcast? No. Okay. It's uh, probably if, well, probably it's like one of my top favorite podcasts. It's wonderful. Um, Mm. And uh, they were recently having, I was listening to an old episode, a conversation about um, the power of like gyms and fitness centers that have either an all female floor or even just a room. That's like a Mm -hmm. woman only space and just how much that changes the experience of, they were kind of telling horror stories of being at the gym with dudes basically. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, that just popped into my head with what you said that there is something that can really fundamentally change um, depending upon the makeup of the space. Yeah, absolutely. And I went to an all women's college. So you would think that there would be other all women's spaces, but what I created was the only autonomous women's space on my college campus and that there was so much power there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and it sounds like that's informed a lot of the work that you do now. Oh, absolutely. And I was a women's studies major. (laughs) Okay. All right. So you're my new go-to person for anything in this space. So something that I'm always curious about when I talk to anyone who, I don't know if you refer to yourself as a coach, but it seems like you operate in that role, right? Would that be mm-hmm. correct? I don't know. Um, I don't call myself a coach, but but pe- it's the closest thing that people kind of have a relationship with. I would say spiritual mentor, spiritual guide. Okay. Okay. So anyone who does work that's in that space, I'm always curious to know if there was a time in their past or evolution that they worked with a coach or a mentor or something like that and kind of what they learn. So is that something that you've done? Not particularly. I've worked with teachers, spiritual teachers to help develop my skill set and help to expand my repertoire of what I can do in my workshops and what I offer. So I'm a forest yoga teacher. I'm a Reiki teach master. I'm, you know, I have different skills that I've acquired over the years, but I've never worked with someone in the capacity that people work with me. How about in a different capacity, someone that you've gone to to either help with like a business coach or a, like, is that something that you have valued in the past, like going to someone to help take you to the next level with any area of your life? I, I, yeah, I, yes, in a sense, because I've studied my work, what I actually do with people for 16 years and done this work for 16 years, but running a business is such a totally different skill set. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That I've had to, I've taken a million classes and read a billion books and listened to all the podcasts because I'm like, how do I translate? How do I make money? How do I get the right people in my world who, because that was a struggle for me for a long time. I was attracting the people who weren't the right match for my work. So figuring out how to do all that. Yes. I've worked with people, classes, books, everything. <laughs> yeah. So what, 
specifically did you have to change in order to attract those right fit people? Mm, I had to get super clear about what I actually do because, you know, I'd done B school, I'd done all these other courses that people funnel into. And I came out being like, yeah, I'm a life coach. I help people who are unhappy, get happy, basically, you know, this like oversimplified work because I wasn't owning, I wasn't claiming what I actually do. I was just trying to fit my work into an established business model. Mm-hmm. And what I had to realize was like, I had to, I, I've taken this last year basically off from my business to get so clear about what I actually do, who I actually help. Um, because I was, I was just attracting people who wanted me to wave a magic wand because they heard spiritual, they heard healer. And they wanted me, they wanted to say, I'm broken, I'm, I'm bad, I'm wrong, wave a magic wand and fix me, but I don't actually want to do the work. I don't actually want to dig deep. I just want you to sprinkle fairy dust and say I'm okay. Yeah, right. Like the people who are going to, the next quick fix, right? That's what they're looking for. Something that's exactly. going to be like the magic. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you kind of own the fact that, or kind of, or maybe this isn't exactly what you said, but what I'm taking from that is I feel like sometimes we have the tendency to, you know, what's wrong with everyone else that I, that the wrong people are coming to me in any situation, right? Whether it's like relationships or, you know, clients mm-hmm. or something like that, but like, we're the common denominator in all of our <laughs> situations. So if it's constantly the wrong people, like, what is it about what I'm putting out there that's attracted, you know, and being able to take that step back and get really clear on, okay, what do I need to say more clearly? Or how can I more, you know, fully stand in what it is that I offer and what I actually do so that I'm not attracting, not that it won't still happen occasionally, right? Like we can only do the best we can, but I do think that there's a, I don't know, like a, a switch into a place of ownership that can mm-hmm. be really, it sounds like was helpful for you. Absolutely. I, and, and I had to look at over the kind of course of my work, who are, who do I have the best relationship with in terms of my clients? And what I've noticed, what, who I am focused on serving right now, because I my my work is my devotional practice. It really is my spiritual practice, and so or one of them. And so I'm like, who do I? Who am I here to serve? Who am I here to help them heal? And my people are women who have survived what Clarissa Pinkola Estes, the author of Women Who Run with the Wolves, calls a great something. They've been through, they've been baptized by fire already. They've been through divorce, um, some kind of trauma, miscarriage, um, abuse, some, some great loss. And they realize that all that stuff that they'd worked so hard for, all their reputation, their job, their career, their corner office, their everything really weren't going to save them. They, they, when, when the, when the shit hit the fan, the, all the things that they were told, all the things they believed were going to save the day didn't. And they started saying, okay, well, what's going to make this? How can I get through this? And that's what I call their shatter point. When, when they hit something and they say, okay, I got to start asking different questions. And so they do. And once they start going internally and start getting some traction with their relationship with their self, start reconnecting back with their soul then they come to me because they want to go deeper. And that's, that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah I, I loved when I read on your website this idea of working with women whose lives have crossed what you call a shatter point. Like there's just something that's very, I don't know, like I resonate with that. Like you know immediately mm-hmm. sort of what that means, even if it's not a phrase that you've heard before, right? So which, mm-hmm. I mean, as a curious person makes me wonder, you know, if you would be comfortable sharing a story of when you personally crossed what you would call a shatter point in your own life. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. And I 
I, these are the conversations I always want to have. This is, I always want to talk about the hearts, <laughs> the deeper stuff. Um, so yes, I would love to talk about, I think two, the two that are most pivotal for me, the first one is when I was 19 years old, I went to college based on momentum. I'd always wanted to take a year off between high school and college. And then my family is, as I mentioned, all educators, and I'm fourth generation college educated. So every, my parents, grandparents, great grandparents, all have undergraduate and graduate degrees, including my great grandfather, who was born two years after slavery ended. Wow. So, right. <laughs> so when I said, I want to, I, and then I went to college and I didn't like it. I was miserable. I was like, I just want to travel the world. And my mom said, I, we don't, I don't know what that means. What do you, you mean? We don't do that in this family. We go to school. That's what we do. That's how we succeed in life. So I went back uh, my sophomore year and I was miserable, be not because of school, right? School was great, but because I was, I hadn't listened to myself. I had listened to what we do. And I say that in, in air quotes, right? These expectations, these norms that were set for me that really had nothing to do with me. And by second semester, I was so depressed because I had denied myself that I remember laying, I was in my apartment off campus, laying in front of the door, watching television. And I was so bedrock depression, like I couldn't get up, I couldn't move that friends came over to visit and check on me. And I didn't have the physical energy to get up and answer the door. Because I was just in the bowels of depression. And that lasted for months. And so at the end of sophomore year, I realized I can't do this. Uh, not only I can't do I, I can't torture myself like this anymore. And, and so I, that's when I took my first, I dropped out for the first time. Mm. And how was that received by your family? Um, I think that's when I stopped paying close attention to how it was received. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I just, because I knew I couldn't do it anymore. And I, I just couldn't. And that summer is when I, I had a five-year season between 19 and 24 when someone in my life died every three to nine months. Someone mm. I, who I was close to, a friend. And that summer was the first summer that started that season. So I not only couldn't, I, you know, not only had had two years where it was just hard, but by the time that summer came and three people had passed away, two who were my age, I just didn't have the emotional fortitude to go back to school. Yeah. So where did you go? I went to Nordstrom <laughs> and I worked at the mat counter. <laughs> that was not what I thought you were going to, I don't know where I thought you were going with it, but this, <laughs> you are delightful. Okay. So you worked at the mat counter. That explains yep. all your amazing lipstick also. Oh, yeah. thank you. And I saved my money and I um, saved and saved and lived in my mom's house and decided that I was going to go to India and Nepal and Thailand and France. And I, and I did. By myself, I went to Nepal, I trekked in the Himalayas, I survived an avalanche, and then I went to India and, and explored the continent, and then I went to Nepal, I mean, uh, France, and, and just found, learned, how, learned how to find my own grounding again, and, and, my, and be in my own feet, in my own experience, and learn the, what the world was outside of what I was expected to be. So you traveled alone, it sounds like? Yes. Mm-hmm. So what is it about solo travel that speaks to you? Mm, such a good question. I, well, I, it, never, it never occurred to me to go with anybody else <laughs> because I, I knew what I wanted to do. And 
you know, again, I was 19. All my peers that I'd grown up with were in college, all my friends. So they weren't taking time off from school. All my college friends were in college and nobody wanted to go to India. Nobody was interested in doing that. So I just went. And and what I learned when I went was that I learned myself in a new way in a country where I don't speak the language or know anybody and have to rely on transportation that I'm not familiar with, that I got to deepen my relationship with myself because I became stronger um, when nothing was convenient anymore. Mm-hmm. That resonates so much with me. I um, <clears throat> This past summer, I went on a 460 mile solo backpacking trip, which was Mm. the first thing. I mean, when you say that it was, you know, the kind of out of the ordinary for your family, for you to have not been so gung ho about college, that was me and my family wanting to do anything outdoors. Like, this is not what we do. (laughs) I grew up in Manhattan. My parents are like city people. You know, my mom was looking at me like I had 16 heads. Like, what do you mean you're going to sleep outside? You're going to poop in the woods. Like what? Like, no, it was just, they couldn't even. And it was funny, you know, the, the suggestions from the people in my life who were feel for fearful um where well why don't you go with someone else or why don't you go with a friend Mm -hmm. right and I mean again logistically not everyone can take a month off their life to go right like do this kind of hike but it sounded it sounds like it was a similar experience in that Mm -hmm. what I wanted was to be in the position where I couldn't give my power away to anyone else where I actually had to decide okay how much water do I need to carry where am I going to sleep tonight how far is enough to hike today which is like all of those little decisions that I I you know in are similar obviously different backpacking than traveling but having to be in that situation where you have to make your own choices, I feel like mm-hmm. is a very empowering experience. That, I love that. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. So when you were traveling, I'm curious if you are like a planner type of, okay, I'm going to go to India. Here's where I'm going to stay. This is what's going to happen week two. Or are you just kind of showing up and figuring it out? Like what was your actual day-to-day itinerary travel experience like? Uh, I'm well, Nepal was planned because I was going to trek for three weeks, but I did that by myself. I just had a guide and porter. Um, so that was pretty planned. And then the rest of the time in Nepal was unplanned. I just wanted to see, but I was, I knew I wanted to see temples and shrines and holy places and be with sadhus and, um, stay at ashrams. So that's what I did. But the specific ones, I didn't always have mapped out. I was doing a program called Servas, which isn't really a program, and it's not super well-known or popular, but it's it's an international peacekeeping organization. And at the time, you the books were paper, so you would apply, become a member of Servas, and say, I want to go to India, Finland, and Uzbekistan. And they would send you a book of all the hosts in those countries, and you would just call or write the host and say, I'm interested. I'm, I'm going to come to so and so. Can I come stay with you? And they would say yes or no. And then you would come and just be a member of their family and a part of their life for whatever time that you were there. And so that's how I saw so much of India from the inside, not from hostels or hotels, which I did do as well. But really through service, I got to know families. I went to weddings and volunteered at daycares that were in the house where I was living and just got to be part of the world instead of. Um, a tourist on the outside looking in. But that was sometimes spontaneous and sometimes planned out, depending on what I decided to do. <laughs> no, I mean, that sounds like an incredible experience. There's nothing like getting to actually live in a place, right? And not just like mm-hmm. you said, be kind of a tourist on the outside. Um, I would also imagine that it's more affordable to do it that way. Yes. Yes, because it's free. That yeah. was free. 
<laughs> so you said you've been to 23 countries. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's a lot. Um, so I'm curious what you think are some, I don't know if misconceptions is the right word, but misconceptions about travel. Like what do other people believe about travel that you think is totally untrue? Mm. That it's dangerous. I think that's the biggest misconception. Be- yeah. That it's dangerous. It, it, you're from New York. I've lived in Atlanta and Seattle. I've been to lots of other places that people would consider dangerous. And the United States is just as dangerous and it's just as safe. You know, it's just as safe to find good people. What really I think matters is trusting your intuition and your common sense and not just thinking that the world's out to get you or that the world's out to save you. But it's about that what you said earlier about reclaiming that power and knowing that you can do it no matter what. And you'll figure it out. Yeah. Oh, I love that, right? You'll figure it out. That's it's that's something I remember. Um, man, I should put a link to this. I'm going to make a note, a link in the show notes. <laughs> There's a short video um, of Danielle Laporte's from years ago. I think it was like a promo for one of her books. And there was like one line in there that she repeats twice. And that's exactly what it was. You'll figure it out. Like you will mm-hmm. figure it out. And for whatever reason, like <laughs> I still will watch that for something. I think it's the video is like credo for making things happen or something I'll put it in the show notes but there's just something about that that sounds so simple but like you'll figure it out like you just you will you figure it out <laughs> like why don't and we trust that before you people have done it before you people are doing it right now yeah I think that there's something that's something that I'm always working on is kind of the self-trust of you don't have to have this like perfect plan or like you'll you'll figure it out when you get there I think yes. I don't know. I mean, obviously we all have a lot of personal growth to do in our lives, but I find something that I believe is that even if we each have lots of different issues, it seems to me that everyone kind of has one core thing that they return to. Like every time you think you're like, yes, I've conquered this issue. The universe is like, that's cute. Like, here's this issue again. (laughs) For me, it's always control. Like that. It's just, I want to control all the things. I want to know exactly what's going to happen. Like I have a real hard time with like surrender and letting go. And so that just keeps showing up in different facets. And this Mm -hmm. idea of like, no, you'll figure it out. Like you don't have to And even if you do have a perfect plan, like, okay, it doesn't mean it's going to work out. Totally. Totally. Oh, man. And the world won't end. Right. So, okay. So then putting you on the spot, do you feel like you have a central reoccurring lesson to learn that like keeps coming up for you that you're like this again? Really? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'm not sure there there's two two layers of it. I don't know is my first one. I I don't know that there's anything right now that feels like it's coming up. Um, And death for me has been a master teacher, which because it just came loss and death came in so hard, so hard and so vigilant and so strong that I had to learn impermanence. And that was hard because I went through not only deaths, but I like lost stuff. So after I went all around the world and was in Africa for a while and as you mentioned earlier, I did collect all the jewelry because I love it. And when I moved back to it from Atlanta to Seattle, all of my jewelry disappeared, all of it from years of collecting from around the world, just gone. And, and things like that would happen all consistently, just disappeared. Things, things that I had so much emotional attachment, people, things, um, relationships just disappeared. And I had to learn non-attachment, letting go, impermanence, it just knocked me over the head like, Laren, this is, this is how things work. Nothing is forever and ever. So it sounds like you were, I think you mentioned before, the kind of, you know, learning through fire, however you phrased it better mm-hmm. than that. But so it sounds like that happened to you with 
death and loss, but the Mm -hmm. lessons learned about, you know, non-attachment or that nothing is permanent. I mean, I feel like that's something that everyone could benefit from. And if, so if you're not someone who has that, let's say forced upon you, right, maybe in quite the same way that you have, has there been any practices or anything that you think is helpful for cultivating that if you don't necessarily have that kind of Mm -hmm. trial by fire? Yeah, I, I think a through line for me is one of the most simple, 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 simple things that we take for granted um, is meditation. And, and in the most simplest form, so I do a Vipassana meditation at least 45 minutes every day. And I've done 11 day uh, silent Vipassana meditation retreats. But I don't think it has to be that deep for everybody. Um, I think just paying attention to your breath the impermanence of the breath, that it comes in and it goes out and it nourishes you and it heals you and it feeds you every single time you're breathing. And if you just slow down enough to pay attention to it, your brain will calm down. That's just part of what naturally happens when you pay attention to your breath. So when we're sitting in this sense of like permanence, attachment, why is this happening to me? You know, how could this dare happen? Whatever the thing is, If we return to the breath, even for just a few moments, it softens that sense of anxiety, that sense of loss, and it can return us back to that something else is coming, another breath is coming in. So for someone who is listening and doesn't know, um, will you talk about what that type of meditation is? You said Vipassana meditation. Mm. For someone who doesn't know what that means, what does that mean? Oh, sure. Vipassana is a um, body-centered, but it's it's all sitting meditation practice. Uh, and I love it so, so much. And it's you, the only way to learn it is at these 11-day retreats, which I would recommend anybody um, go to. They're actually free. 11 days, you cannot pay, you cannot make a donation to them until you've done it at least once. And there's no donation required, and they're global. So wherever you are in the world, there's probably a Vipassana meditation retreat near you. Um, and it just is, it's the idea, the theory is that this is the, 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 the practice, the meditation practice that the Buddha did. But it's really about being present with you, with whatever is right now. And, and it's hard. It's hard. Stuff comes up all the time in your mind, in your body, when you're just sitting. And in the 11-day retreats, you, you meditate for 11 hours, at least 11 hours every day, beginning at four o'clock in the morning. Oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God, girl. Listen, I have recently, all right, good. Let's get into this. Let's talk about meditation. I have recently, I've tried to build a meditation practice for years, right? Tried and failed and tried and failed. And I finally realized it was because all of those other times I was doing it because it was something that I felt like I should do. Like any list that you read online of these are the things that successful people, whatever, here's how to be happy or here's like meditations on all of them, right? So I'm like, well, this is probably something that I have to do, which (laughs) I don't know how many times I have to learn this lesson. Like I'm never going to stick with something if I don't have like a deep emotional attachment to actually doing Mm. it. It can't be a should. It can't be someone else's idea. It has to be something that I I really feel a need for or that I've reached a point in my life where the pain of not doing the thing is uh, now eclipsed the fear of doing the thing or the boredom of doing the thing or whatever. And so I had um, a lot of I mean, I deal with depression, anxiety, all all of that, but I had a lot of anxiety over the holiday season that was just, I mean, it was like crippling anxiety. I finally thought, you know what, 2017, you know, I need to and want to develop, like cultivate some equanimity and be able to have, you know, just less anxiety. I thought meditation, I'm ready. So I'm using the Headspace app. 
right? I don't know if you've mm-hmm. seen it or mm-hmm. used it or whatever, but it's really awesome. And it's funny, the thing that really made the difference for me, I mean, I can't imagine 11 hours a day. This, I'm like up to 20 <laughs> minutes and it's like, I can't, I can't even with the 20 minutes, but um, <laughs> that it's the, the perspective switch that really was helpful for me was I used to get really frustrated because I felt like I wasn't good at meditation. Like my mind's always wandering. I'm restless. This hurts. This itches. Like, and it was, it took the shift of kind of how this guy whose app this is like narrates it makes some really good points that it's basically like mental training that you're training the mind the same way as a runner. Like it makes a lot of sense to me that you show up and you do the work, even if you're not in the mood or like the run doesn't have to go well in order for it to count towards like in order for it to be beneficial for you. Right. And so kind of Mm -hmm. switching that to just being there, just like continuing to bring the attention back to the breath, the Mm -hmm. Mm 10,000 times in 20 minutes that it wanders. I know it sounds silly, but it's really been helpful for me to have that perspective switch, which makes me anytime I I meet someone like you, who's done done some, you know, something like this 11 day thing or for 45 minutes a day, what was it like for you at the beginning? Well, before I say that, I want to say that that is meditation. Exactly. It doesn't sound silly at all. What you said is, is meditation. There is no mastery. That's why it's practice. That's why meditation is a practice, right? They're like bringing your, that, that you are meditating in that moment is just accepting what is. That's all meditation is. It gets all fancy and all, you know, all the things, but Meditation is just being in this exact present moment. And at this exact present moment, you're thinking about that vegan pizza that you want for dinner. But you're saying, this is what I'm thinking about. That's meditation. Yeah, exactly. Yes. No, I mean, it's honestly, and I've heard that before, but I think I wasn't ready to hear it until, you Mm. know, like that message resonates with me that I had to fully accept that. Like, I thought it was just something that people were saying to make me feel better about being bad at meditation. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, like that. No, it's just the act of sitting there and, you know, consciously, okay, I'm thinking now I'm going to focus on the breath. Like that it's just the practice of doing it is like, that is the thing. Like you already win because you're, and it's, it's been probably not a surprise to you. For me, I mean, at the time of this recording, I think 18 days that I have been doing it consecutively. And it's insane that it's, I'm already feeling like definitely different. And I thought it was going to take a lot longer, but 18 days, it's like, even my husband's like, you're so calm. You're so much less reactive. And I'm like, you're welcome. (laughs) Man. Ah, so meditation works, yeah. folks. Yeah, it does. Congrats. And yes, and in Vipassana, just as an aside, you're not sitting for the whole 11 hours. There's breaks. You can do things, you know. So it's pauses. Okay. So, okay. So take me to the story of the first time that you meditated or early meditation for you. Um, I... I think I'd meditated in different ways before. And the first Vipassana... Med- I'd done one people of color retreat, um, meditation, Vipassana retreat, but it wasn't out of Vipassana center. So that was good, but I don't think I really got deeply into it. And then the second time I went to a, the first time I went to a Vipassana center, it was hard. I did. I didn't want, because the first sit of the day, you can do it in your room. So I, I, you know, meditated in my room, which also could have been considered sleep, but let's just say I meditated, but it, so I was kind of resistant. I, I wrestled with it because it was hard to sit in your shit for 11 hours and just sit and not distract and not, you can't write, you can't read, you don't even make eye contact with other participants. It, it is, you are there. And it took me, once I dropped in, I realized how much I loved it because I, I love a monastic life. In, in my travels, I stayed at monasteries and nunneries and I love it. I, I was probably a nun or a monk in my past life. I just, 
I love silence and meditation and spiritual practice, but it, it was, it's hard not to like honor the busyness of the mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially when that's like busyness in general is something that we culturally glorify. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, this might be a kind of a slight left turn, but I read <laughs> feedback from your workshop participants that mm-hmm. one of the things they said that um, caught my attention was that you're really wonderful at creating sacred spaces. Mm. And so, I don't know, I'm just curious like, how you approach that. How do you make that happen? Because I think that's something, I don't know whether it's, you know, obviously in a workshop space or at home, just being able to create more of that sacred space for yourself or for others. Uh, yeah, I, I think part of it is all of it. Part of it is all of it. <laughs> In the sense that, like, as I said, my, my work is my devotional practice. So before I do anything, I'm in prayer, I'm in meditation, I'm in devotion, asking to be used asking to be a vessel, asking to create a space where people can heal and to connect with their stuff that they've been in denial about. So what happened was I thought I was running my business. I thought I was in charge. I thought I was like doing, and I got burnt out. I got exhausted. And I have my own physical limitations, which we can totally talk about too in physical challenges. Um, and, and so I was just pushing myself so hard because I thought I was in charge. I forgot. I'd kind of like disowned God or kind of like got spiritually arrogant and like thought I wasn't, you know, didn't need to do pray or, you know, any of that. Like I got this really. I didn't think this at the time, but in retrospect, I realized this is what was happening and, and, and stuff was awry. But when I started realizing that I'm just a vessel, I'm just a vehicle that help people to help people heal, but I'm not doing the healing, then I could really create sacred space. So, so once I got clear in my mind and my heart, then all the practices of creating an altar and ritual and doing libation, all the, the practices clicked. But otherwise, it's just like um, going through the motions, if I'm not in devotion to something bigger, if I'm not in de- devotion to something that that is made this all possible, then it's just acting to me. So that phrase that you just said, spiritual arrogance, really mm. caught my attention. What do you mean by that? Can you say more about that? Yeah, I, I, I see this a lot in um, a lot of spiritual teachers and leaders, where it's this sense that like, I know, I know your, the answers. I'm your guru. I'm the come to me. Um, and this is online and offline where it's like I'm and, and you don't know. My work is about helping you remember what you forgot and creating a sacred space, as you said, where you can let down your guard, where you can feel safe and held and seen and loved and remember to create how to create that experience for yourself. And when people start getting spiritually arrogant, they forget that it ain't about you, boo. It ain't, you're not, this has nothing to do with you. If people want to wear your mala beads or your t-shirt or, you know, subscribe to your website or read your book or like praise you as the all whatever. This is about whoever's in front of you. You are in service of them. They're not in service of you. 
Yeah. So it's not letting the ego <laughs> run rampant, yes. again, which I mean, that's another thing that I would really love to get to the point where like, there's like a point of arrival, right? Oh, good. I don't have to deal with my ego anymore. <laughs> like, obviously, uh-huh. it's a continuous, right? Like, it's a continuous thing. So, whoa, did you hear Ooh, that? I did. Um, that we've had so much snow. It sounds like <gasps> some crazy snow where ice just fell off the side of the house. Oh, my gosh. But I'm assuming that everything is fine. Okay, so now in your work, it sounds like your own personal spiritual practices are a large part of what enables you to do that work. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, and they always have been, but it it was coming from a place. I mean, and it, and this is like years in the process. So my work has always been that, but the business part hasn't always been that. You know, so like I always am in prayer and devotion before my work. Um, but like how to run the business, I was like, I got this, I'll figure it out. And I, and now I've made that like really talking to God, have being in prayer, being in around, like, what is my business model? Cause I was doing it all wrong. I was running someone else's business that had nothing to do with actually what serves me. So, yeah, I'd love, I mean, if you could get a little bit, I don't know if tactical is the right word here, but specific mm-hmm. examples of like before I was doing X and now I'm doing Y. Sure. Before I was doing one-on-one coaching over the phone and now I'm the only way to work with me one-on-one is for six months intensive in person and it's my highest ticket item. So you don't do phone stuff anymore? Nope. And I only do groups. I I do groups um, virtually. I only do groups virtually. I don't do do one-on-one virtually. What led you to that decision? Because my work is healing work, I need to see and feel the person if I'm going to do one-on-one work. I need to be in the same space with them. I'm very much connected energetically. And if it's just on the phone, it feels so superficial from the way that I, where my gifts and strengths are. Mm -hmm. So I can't drop in and feel that person across the internet. And it became, it became, um, spot fixes like oh my boyfriend oh my job oh my these things instead of being able to really drop in and into a sacred space and create actual sustainable healing and change well I respect so much that you made that shift because I think I mean not I think I know from having conversations with lots of other people that either you know own their own business or want to start their own thing that there's so much fear around like closing off options, right? Like, mm-hmm. so, like that's a bold decision in how, you know, uh, in like the one-on-one, you know, if we call it coaching or whatever else space that so much of it's done virtually, right? Like, what do you mean oh, that really? you have to, I have to work with you in person? Or it's almost like, <laughs> it's, that seems like I could see how someone would be like, that's crazy. Like how it's the same way that I feel. And I use this example all the time about our friend, Alex Franzen, not using social media, right? Like that <laughs> someone would be like, you can't have a successful business. And like, it's, it's really very helpful for me to have the these examples and of people who, you know, the thing that you say that you can't do that, or you have to do it this way are doing the opposite and being really successful. Totally. Absolutely. And, and that's why I, so kind of a full circle moment is why my life has prepared me to make that decision in my business, right? When I dropped out of college and said, I don't care what the expectation is, I got to do what's right for me. It's the same thing for this. When I'm saying, I'm not doing one-on-ones anymore. You only can work with me in person. And it's, it's going to be a significant financial investment to do it that way. It's totally different than what I learned in all of the courses that I've taken. But I know that that's 
that's how I'm here to serve people. Were there growing pains in how other people, clients, et cetera, reacted to that? Like, did it take time for people to transition into, oh, this is a high ticket thing and this is the only option available to me? Um, no, because I'm in, I'm in the middle of a rebrand and a relaunch. So there, so I, I've told my folks in increments that like, I'm not doing one-on-ones. I've closed that out. And, um, I already, even though I haven't relaunched yet, I already have someone in this six month intensive. Um, but she's also done in-person workshops with me. She's also been part of my world and had significant life changes finalized the divorce, quit her big fancy job, started her own business just from our group work together. So she was ready to go deeper into one-on-one. So, and that's really who it's for people who are already on the path and are ready to go deeper, not someone who wants a, a magic wand fix. Yeah. Not someone that you have to convince to work with you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you mentioned being in the process of a rebrand, which I know that you mentioned on the current iteration of your site, something that I did want to talk about that you had listed. I'm always really interested in people's kind of whether you call them values or core beliefs or whatever. And you mm. have a, a beautiful section talking about, you know, some of the things that you believe. And I wanted to go deeper into a couple of them, if that is mm. okay with you. Yes. One of the things that you said is, I believe that no is a complete sentence. And so I would love to hear more about that because I feel like, especially lately, I've been talking to my female friends about this and about the common tendency, especially as women, to feel the need to justify or explain anything that's a negative answer, right? Like if you're not going to do some, oh, it's because this, it's because that like you have to have to be understood. You have to make people understand, right? That there's, so this idea that no is a complete sentence, which of course I've heard before, but can you talk more about how you came to that belief and how that kind of looks in your own life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I feel like I need to justify, explain, prove uh, myself to anyone, it, I feel weaker. It energetically weakens me. And I think it weakens a lot of people, but we're so used to doing it. It's such an expectation and a habit that we don't realize how it's affecting us emotionally, physically, mentally to feel like we have to explain ourselves. And I I don't think fundamentally we have to explain ourselves because you are enough. What you want, what you think, what you believe, what you trust, what you hope for are sufficient. And so when when no, when if it's like, can I borrow a thousand dollars or can you want to have dinner, whatever, um, doesn't need, doesn't need it. And I think the people who get it, get it. And the people who don't, don't. And, and it's also the, the other part of it is like being able to accept no as a complete sentence. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, something that I personally struggle with a lot, if I'm being honest, is I have a pretty deep fear of being misunderstood. Like it's really important mm-hmm. to me that people like, no, that's not how I meant it. Or that's not, you know, so I see that even in, you know, using an example of, you know, someone will email me and invite me to be part of some project or something or test this thing or guest post for that, like, which none of that I do. Right. And I'm like very clear about that on my contact page. But even still, like if someone, you know, takes the time to reach out to me and to present me with an opportunity, like I feel this, well, I have to tell them why, because I don't want them to take it personally. Or like, there's just, and I I know I'm not alone. I think this is a super common thing. So uh, yeah, I'm just interested in that idea that you can just say no. No, but the flip side of that means you have to also, like you said, be okay being on the receiving end of no mm-hmm. is a complete sentence. Totally. And I'm not saying like, it, you know, you don't have to give explanation ever, but I think it's knowing internally that you're 
that, that your no is sufficient. And if you say, no, I'm not doing this, you know, Alex has the, this phrase where she said for a while, you know, my dance card is full right now. That's okay. You can explain that, but it's not coming from an apologetic space. And so maybe it's the energy that the rest of the supporting evidence is coming from is, is what is important, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that. So that leads me to that one of the next things that you said, you said, I believe that your intuition knows more than your intellect. You just have to trust it. Mm-hmm. And that is something for me that sounds awesome in theory, but <laughs> how, okay, so how do you personally tap into your intuition? Or is this something that you've ever helped other people to do? Because I can see someone listening to this and being like, oh, that sounds great. How do I do that? <laughs> you know? Yeah, so Part of my gifts, part of my strength is I'm very strong in the clairs. So I don't know if you are familiar with the, the, this, the clairs, but um, there's clairvoyant, clairsatient, clairaudient. And so clairvoyant is people who get, actually, let me back it up a little bit. It's, it's the way that you get more non-physical information, basically. So it sounds scary, right? We imagine someone who's like looking over a crystal ball saying, oh, I see this in the future. But really, it's about like, how else do you hear? So some people are clairaudient, and they may hear a whisper about something that's just giving them more information about what's going on. Some people are clairsatient, so they feel things in their body or emotionally that gives them more information about what's going on. And so I have Pretty strong clairs. Clairsatient is my strongest clair, meaning I, I tend to feel things in my body. I'm not emotionally clairsatient um, that give me more information. And I'm and then I have the other clairs, but that's my my strongest clair. Um, and then intuition is like your internal way of knowing. So in internal tuition, right? Knowing knowledge. So your internal way of knowing, and it's for the people who are listening, like, what is she talking about? <laughs> it part of it is like that nudge that you dismiss that gut feeling that you say, well, that doesn't actually make sense because the, the light is green and I, my home is left. Why should I turn right? Or, and, and so we talk ourselves out of it, even though you're getting hints and clues all the time. And the way to strengthen that knowledge is to follow it, not to intellectualize it. And so the the way that shows up in my life is it's really minutia. I'm at the point where it's like, because I did it, I did it wrong for years, I would have it the information, I'd be like, I'm just going to see what happens if I don't listen to my intuition. I'm just going to experiment with like going the other way that I guess would be the rebellious piece. And it would go wrong. And I would say, I knew that I knew I should have done that. And it took me, that's part of where the spiritual arrogance came in. Like, I thought I knew more than what my intuition was telling me. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. I mean, I've heard, obviously, the word clairvoyant, but I haven't heard any of the other ones that you said. So this is Mm. super fascinating for me. This idea, (laughs) what you said about the physical thing. I mean, when I think back to, you know, I was mentioning anxiety, these types of things. It Things that I ignore show up physically for me. Like that there are Mm -hmm. kind of common red flags where it's like, okay, like this. And so for me, it always winds up coming out in some like targeted journaling or question asking. I'm a really big fan of developing the skill of asking yourself good questions. Um, 
And so a, a kind of question or that works well for me is what's true that I have been denying? Like what's true mm-hmm. for me that I've been denying? And that's usually, and it's always, it takes me, you know, I don't want to go to, cause I, I know the thing that's true, but for whatever reason, it was, it's inconvenient or like you said, intellectualizing it away or, mm-hmm. you know, and it's those things that like I feel in my body. So yeah, I, I can hear a lot of what you're saying as true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's how so many of the things that we're talking about intersect and overlap, right? Like the more you can trust that in your body, the more confident and powerful you'll feel traveling abroad because you'll know, okay, I know this guy is smiling at me and says he can give me a ride back to my hotel, but my gut is saying no, so I'm not going to get in the cab. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like trusting that. And, and it's also part of the people pleasing and why I, I am like so purposely not a people pleaser because it's not always rational. You know, like there are people who are in my world who I may say, I just don't have a good feeling about them. And then I learn later that maybe they're not honest in the way that I value honesty, but I didn't have to give way. That's, aha, aha, this is, this is the linchpin. Okay, I'm ready. Give it to me. I used to wait for evidence to prove my intuition right. Yes. (laughs) That's, and then I, I had to learn, and so this is really showed up in my romantic relationships. I was like, oh, this isn't going so well, but I'm just going to keep going. And then be like, oh, wait, you were cheating on me? Wait, what for this whole time? I knew it, you know? And so learning to like not have to wait for evidence and go with my first mind has been the game changer. And, and that's not, people don't like that. It doesn't make people feel good that they want to know why. And sometimes you just got to go with what you know. Okay, so I definitely want to talk about this more because that's fascinating. <laughs> Do you remember, you know, uh, either, I mean, obviously you just gave the example about, oh, you were cheating on me this whole time. Like, that's a very clear example. But like, was there a first time where you were like, you know what, I'm not going to wait for evidence for this. Like, I know that this is true. So many times. It, it shows up mostly in, has shown up mostly in my romantic relationships because I, I've been cheated on multiple times. And I usually knew I all some I caught one of my exes in bed with someone else you know and it I but I knew to go to the house at that time but I just yeah the intuition yeah okay okay yeah Uh and 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 this so this is where it was my biggest red flag because I was just so um in love or not wanting to rock the boat or not you know wanting to shake things up even and and really was saying I have a strange feeling about this. Are you sure nothing's going on? And waiting for them to say, oh, something's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, like confess. And it, it, that was my um, kind of rope course in learning. You have to trust what you know, regardless of the words that are coming out of someone's mouth. And I, it took me years to learn that lesson. Uh-huh. It's, I mean, I see a lot of parallels with that and what you said about this idea of no being a complete sentence that mm-hmm. in, any, in any given situation, the the full sentence can just be this doesn't feel right to me it doesn't have to be well because or because like this doesn't feel good so I'm not going to do this thing exactly that's it which it's almost and like even saying that I there's a part of me that's like how arrogant are you that you're like well this doesn't feel good so I'm not going to do this but it's not that like it's this I don't know it's like a self-trust self-respect mm-hmm. thing that like that's that's enough the situation it doesn't right like what you said no it doesn't feel good to get in the in the ca- in the cab with this man no matter how nice he seems to be nope not going to do it like that's enough of a reason just because you don't mm-hmm. want to it's that I think I mean again I think I mean it's not a, a solely a, a female problem but this has also come up in conversations with friends recently about this idea that you know 
it's like just you don't want to. That's right. Why is that not enough? Like, why are your inherent feelings not enough of a reason, right? That you need to have this 10 point plan that, you know, is understandable by your family and by, you know, the patriarchy and whatever. That is literally, you just took the words out of my mouth. I was about to say because of patriarchy. That's exactly why it's not, you don't see men and or male bodied people or male identified people. Um, feeling compelled to justify themselves in the same way that women are socialized to. I don't think it's biology. It's what we're told we are, what makes us a girl, what makes us a woman is giving reasons. Yeah. You know, it's funny, this idea of socialization, because I agree with you hundred percent. Like if I think back, it's not a lesson that I was ever taught explicitly. Like no one ever sat me down and was like, all right, this is what it is to be a woman, right? Like you're, you can't just go off your little feelings. It is, it's so interesting and terrifying the way that kind of just the, the cues accumulate into now this is what women believe we have to do, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's part of dimming our power. It's part, it's part of quieting our voice. It's part of being soft. It's part of being palatable. It's part of, you know, What's that? Um, sugar and spice makes every little girl's nice. Something like that. Yeah, something I, like that. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's like what? And if you're bold or direct or um, unquestioning or confident or all these or ambitious or driven, you know, all these things that are male identified in this culture. It's very culturally specific. That's not a global understanding of humanity in, in terms of male and, and female. But if if you are those things, then you're considered not womanly or not girly, that you're boyish or trying or tomboy. And I and I I completely disagree. Completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've told this story on an earlier episode, but it's I think relevant again. So I will share it with you. This I um had uh, what's the easiest way of saying this um that i a couple of months ago um kind of shared with back when i was doing like public writing public emails and stuff you know a decision that i had made and really high standards that i had set for myself and like kind of really believing in the value in setting high standards and knowing that you're not going to be perfect but you know trying to hold that standard for yourself and it was interesting the ne- the only negative feedback most of the negative feedback that i got came from men right who emailed me back about mm. i don't know whatever like here's my opinions on your life but it's so <laughs> it made me think it kind of spiraled into this thing of making me realize how I don't know competitiveness isn't like that's not uh, an approved feminine quality totally right Mm -hmm. when like like, why is it not okay like it's so respected for you know men in business in sport and everything to be super competitive right and that it's just that's not ladylike and I like really bristled against that a lot I would would mm, uh, drill down a little bit in that because I think it's not for the individual girl and woman, right? Like to be a girl who wants to run a race or be a girl who wants to be the CEO or be a woman who wants to be the CEO, that's not seen as feminine. But to com- to pit women against each other in competition, that's seen as like a girl or feminine trait that women can't get along because they're competitive with each other. Interesting. Okay, I agree 100%. Say more about this. Yes. I, I, but I think that's how patriarchy works. Like we, we're told that there's this limited amount of value or beauty or intelligence or whatever. There can only be one girl scientist. There can only be one woman who's in the C-suite. There can, and so then competing, it's like, oh, that's what women do. They can't get along. They're catty. They, you know, women just compete with each other. That's why guys have to run things. But when if... If it's, um, and so it's, it's, 
it's built into this idea of womanhood that we can't get along. But again, that's just patriarchy and expression where all of it, it's patriarchy and expression. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a, it's like such a tool of distraction, right? Like if you distract all the women and make them catty with each other, then like it's just, I mean, obviously this could be like a 19 million hour conversation about just this one topic, right? But yeah. Totally. Yes, yes, totally. yes, yes, yes. So again, complete left turn. The last um, belief <laughs> statement on your site that I wanted to hear more about, you said, I believe that tarot can give you insight and Tantra will reignite your libido. So I'm listening. Tell, tell me, <laughs> tell me, girl, I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I do believe that I love the tarot. I have many decks that I have fun with and enjoy and, and am not a, a seasoned reader by any imagination. And I have worked with people who are, and I think it's great. And Tantra, same thing. I've loved it. I think it's good for strengthening your libido and reigniting some spiritual or sexual fires that may have uh, gone a little soft. But the real reason I've put that on there is because so many people on and offline in this world, the spiritual or healing world that I'm in, think that that's where it stops. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying, yes, I do agree with those things. And there's something deeper. There's, they're just tools. They're just tools for the deeper, for your actual insight. You can, you can learn what the tarot knows about you with the cards or without. You can ignite your spiritual, uh, or I keep saying spiritual, your sexual uh, furnace with or without um, Tantra. They're useful, but don't stop there. Like take your power back and take responsibility for creating what you want. Yeah. So even helpful tools are just that, they're tools. Exactly. Yeah. They're Mm -hmm. not the whole thing. So were you always a spiritual person? Like, is this how you were raised? I was raised religious. I was raised um, Christian uh, and African-American Methodist, wait, African Methodist Episcopalian, which is its own denomination. Um, And I went to church every Sunday, Sunday school, every Sunday, uh, really involved in church. And I was the, my best friend and I were the, the people in the Sunday school class who would like ask (laughs) questions like that our Sunday school teachers didn't know the answer to like, why does it say um, women obey your husbands? Because we were both children of single moms. So we were like, that doesn't make any sense. I can't imagine my mom obeying anybody. Mm, And so for them to say, you know, women should, why? My mom, you know, does this all by herself and she's amazing. Why should she obey? So we were always challenging. I remember asking one of my Sunday school teachers, if you don't say amen at the end of a prayer, does God still get the prayer? And then being like, no, it's like a stamp. <laughs> and I was like, that's so, I was a child, but I still thought it was ridiculous. But I'm, so I didn't really get to know God or the sacred or the divine in church, but it started a conversation that I became really passionate and curious and invested in. So did you feel kind of coming out of growing up in that, I don't know, space, did you feel like something was missing that you were searching for? Or like, what was the step after that? I'm curious on kind of your spiritual evolution, if we're going to call it that. Yeah, I was never, um, I was never like Jesus is the only way to know God. So I never, I was never rigid or narrow in my beliefs. But when I got to college and my friends were also 
spiritual. So at that time, I was vegetarian. I was doing yoga. I was meditating. So I'd already kind of started doing things that were considered spiritual, but didn't really have any spiritual attachment to anything. And and my friends who were doing those same kinds of things, who were vegan or even raw food, and this is in the late 90s in Atlanta, um, came from different spiritual or religion backgrounds. So some of, one of my closest friends was Rasta. One of them was Baha'i. One of them was Hebrew Israelite. So all these, and they would take me to like, my Rasta friend took me to my first Nayabingi, which is a sacred Rasta ceremony. I would meet with the Baha'is in their gatherings. And I would just start to say, oh, look at, this is how all these different people know the sacred and, and are in reverence and worship and communion. And, and so that started to really deepen deep in my journey and my conversation. Cause I didn't really know. I just knew God was some, was something, but I didn't really know how to have a relationship with it. So I stopped calling it God and started calling it sacred spirit, the divine, all those things. And is that kind of your current iteration of it? Like what's, I guess your relationship with the word God now, is that something that's part of your life and practice? It is. I start, I've reclaimed the word God. I used to say, I mean, and I, and all of them are still true for me. But what I realized it was, I the 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 more I was using words that weren't my first language in relationship to the sacred, the more distant I felt from it. And reclaiming the word God helped me reclaim an intimacy that wasn't accessible when I said spirit. That's spirit really became, interesting. Mm. Yeah, I mean words mean stuff, right? So Mm -hmm. (laughs) being it like, I think language choice is very important, right? Like finding something that resonates with you. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's not, it's like, like, that's why language feels like a good parallel for me because English is my first language and I speak French, but I don't speak it like a native speaker. And so saying God is like, I get to define what not define it, but I get to like reclaim it. It doesn't have to be this patriarchal white bearded man in heavens with a staff who says you are horrible. (laughs) It can be all of the other things that I now know about the sacred, the divine, the numinous, um, without in, in the language that feels like home to me, because part of reclaiming God to me too, is like allowed me to surrender, allowed me to like lean on something and trust something and not have to be in charge, which is what I was trying to do. Mm -hmm. So through all of your travels, and it sounds like there was a spiritual element to some Mm -hmm. of the places you went, places that you stayed. Mm -hmm. And was there any experience um, that really stands out as impactful for you from a spiritual perspective in your travels? So many. One of the things I'm most passionate and interested in is pre-colonial religion and pre-colonial spiritual practices. Being of African descent, for the most part, um, I'm really interested in how Black folk, African folk, worshipped and knew the divine before they were told Christianity was the way. And so when I snuck into Cuba illegally by myself, not speaking the language. Oh my God, you're amazing. I just, I'm sorry, like small pause and like mini wave in celebration of you. Okay, continue. Next. I just, my whole philosophy is like, we live on a planet. How can you tell me where I can't go? Oh my gosh. I just, I've never started a sentence with when I snuck into Cuba. So yes, I'm, you, you have my full attention. I'm into this. Go. So I went, I went for three weeks. I just said, I'm going to go. And this is 10 years ago. And 
I was, you know, out exploring. I had gone the day before to um, uh, Santeria, which is the African kind of African uh, religion, African-based religion in Cuba that's under the guise kind of a Catholicism in some ways. And I'd gone to the museum, which was not very interesting the day before, and I kind of walked around. And then I was walking down the street and I heard these drumming and singing. And I'm, this is part of how I can travel is because I'm insatiably curious. So I just, and, and I just go where I want to go. So I just walked up to this house <laughs> where there was all this music and I just kind of invited myself in and they were in deep ceremony. And I asked permission in my non-Spanish kind of gestures, if I could come in and witness and, and they said yes. And they welcomed me in and I spent the rest of the day in this deep Santeria experience with Cubans who didn't know me, who I didn't know, who welcomed me into this, this process. And it was probably in so many ways, right? Being part of the African diaspora, being there, being welcomed in, seeing these traditions on different lands is probably one of the most nourishing and fortifying things that I've seen because I could go to India and stay in ashrams, which I've done, but that was in particular deeply nourishing because it was part of my diaspora. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the thing that sparks for me just in, in terms of trying to get to know you and who you are, that there's, Mm -hmm. there's obviously some quality there that, well, I, you know, you kind of nonchalantly said, well, I snuck into Cuba, right? So (laughs) that makes me wonder, and I'm sure there are more, if there's any other stories that you can share about situations where you kind of, I don't know, did the thing that you weren't supposed to do. And it turned out to be, you know, a meaningful or a pivotal thing for you. Oh, so many. (laughs) You're like, this is my entire life. How much time do you have? (laughs) It really is. It's so, so, and this is kind of how our whole conversation, it's like, I think when we started, it sounds like theory, like, no, I just do what I want to do it. I just, you know, I just go where I want to go. But now I'm, I'm laughing because it's, it's just, it, it's so much so that it doesn't occur to me that it's something that people wouldn't do other than Cuba. Cuba's a, an exception, but I'm like, Oh, you want it? Just, I'll give another example. This is even before this, this is, I was think I was in the ninth grade and uh, no eighth grade. And my mother had rented an RV and packed up my sister, her best friend, me and my cousin, and took us on a three week journey through the Canyon lands. And we were in the grand Canyon looking at the grand Canyon. And I heard this, family, a man and a woman and their daughter speaking French. So I walked up to them and just started speaking French with them. The next summer, she came to Seattle to visit me for the summer. The next summer, I went to France to visit her. And then, and then I visit her every time I'm in France now. That's, that's just, it never occurred to me that people wouldn't just walk up to someone and start talking to them and then invite them to their house. You know, I, I just, it's just, I think the world is a beautiful, safe place. And I engage with people that way. I don't really have a lot of fear of anything. Yeah, something that is coming out for me as like a through line just in this conversation or, you know, what you're sharing about yourself is this idea that I know we mentioned ownership before, but like kind of taking ownership over needing to create your own luck, your own magic, your own stories, mm-hmm. like each of these stories, even though, you know, they're different from each other. I feel like the the common denominator of all of them is like you're putting yourself out there. You're opening yourself up. I don't know. There's, there's just like something really beautiful in that, like that things don't just happen. Right. I mean, I guess sort of sometimes they do, but <laughs> that there is a lot to be gained from being the one who takes the first step. 
Yeah. And I think I totally agree. And I think what the undergirding belief that I have is that no matter what happens, it doesn't make me a failure. No matter what happens, if dropping out of school didn't make me a failure, failing classes didn't make me a failure, you know, finding some, my lover in bed with someone else didn't make me a failure. You know, like I, I don't internalize and personalize and make me wrong for being human. And I think that's what allows me to keep going and living and bumping my head and figuring things out. And, you know, there, there've been times in my business where I remember having $11 in my bank account for months, months, because I was trying to figure out how to run a business that would sustain me. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't like, Oh, this is horrible. And I, you know, I've taken temp jobs, I've done other things, but, but I didn't say, Oh, I'm a terrible business person. I'm a horrible person. I said, I got to figure out how to make this work. It's the same thing. I got to figure this out. It's not, I, 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 and I think that that's, it's like letting myself off the hook from being human. I'm not going to have all the answers. Yeah. Well, and not it's, I feel like my entire life or maybe just being human in general is kind of holding seemingly contradictory truths at the same time mm-hmm. that like I very much believe in taking responsibility for yourself in your life right and not like pushing the blame off onto someone else or whatever else falls into that category but you know not but and I also believe everything that you're saying and this idea that well I'm just human I don't have to make this mean more than it does mean right that they seem like they are in conflict with each other, right? But mm-hmm. they're not. That they, it's so much of, I think, I don't know, just so much of life is being able to kind of coexist with two things that seem like they want to be at odds with each other, but actually need to work together in order, I don't know, for like us to live. <laughs> totally. Totally. It's because we are at the intersections. We are always at the intersections. There, we're never uh, unadulteratedly one thing or another. We're always holding complexity of being sacred and profane all the always mm-hmm. always and once we can like be present to that accept that honor that then we can let go of this perf- this idea that we're going to ever be anything but that mm-hmm. yeah so this is i mean kind of an open-ended question but given kind of the ranging nature of the work that you do and i don't know these ideas of trauma and healing and grief mm-hmm. or anything in that is there anything else that you want to talk about in that space like i'm just kind of I guess putting it on you to, because you, I mean, you know more about your work than I know about your work, but is there something that you feel like a story you want to share or something else about kind of that work that you would like to speak to? Yes. I I love, I mean, okay, this is going to sound strange, but I, I love trauma and healing. The relationship is inextricable, right? Like, because we live in a culture that is so committed to denial and pushing down and veneer and pretty and smiley and all the things good on the surface um, that we don't usually get to the deep stuff. We're just like, how do I get back to the surface? How do I make this sound good, look good, feel good? And sometimes it doesn't do any of those things. But I think it's about being willing to feel the pain, feel the discomfort, feel the longing, feel the whatever, and grieve the grief that actually gets us through because our fear is, it's going to keep us stuck that we will, if we start feeling the pain, the sadness, the grief, the longing, that we'll just be in it forever. But I think it's the ungrieved emotion that 
is what is causing our trauma is our is what's causing our sustained trauma and our sustained pain, not the trauma itself. Yeah, like the idea of kind of what you said, denial or the avoidance of dealing with or processing emotions, that that's what keeps us stuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting. Something that I think about a lot is that we're not, well, I, I shouldn't blanket statement. I was not, and I think this is common, taught really how to deal with difficult emotions, right? Mm-hmm. Grief, any of these things. But the, I also think equally, or maybe even more important, we're not taught how to respond to other people experiencing those emotions, yes. right? That there's, so, and I don't even know what the question is in here, but just kind of your your thoughts on how to hold space for someone else that's experiencing trauma, grief, these things, that's really mm-hmm. like in it. I don't know, I feel like our we have this inherent kind of knee jerk, I wanna fix it, right? Mm-hmm. Or aren't mm-hmm. you over this yet? Or like there's mm-hmm. just, I don't know, like we're just not, I don't, I think we're just not comfortable in that. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on how to mm-hmm. be on the receiving end of someone else's pain. Oh, such a beautiful, necessary, important question. I, I think, well, I know the first piece is is similar to this this well i'll just say it is owning your own shit first right like if you're wanting to hold space witness support someone and you know that you feel unseen in your own life you might resent seeing them mm-hmm. so it's own it's being self aware enough to know what you're bringing into the situation and to check yourself first. What your what are your expectations? What are your open wounds? What are your unresolved things? Because nothing really needs to be fixed. Most people just need a good listening to. They don't need to be fixed or told what to do or, you know, resolved. But if you're carrying a sense of whatever expectation, guilt, whatever entitlement into the conversation, it's a lot harder to hold. And so part of it for me is like, that's, that's where my meditation prayer come in. Use me, let me, my ego, my sense of Laren get out of the way and let the divine move through me, which is pure love. How can I be full of pure love and just be a witness to whatever is going on for you so that I don't think I have the answer? Cause I don't have the answer. I mean, I may mm-hmm. think, right. But what you need may be totally different from what the person next to you needs. So let me be a hold witness and then move based on my clairs or my intuition or even inquiry to support you in the best way that's going to help your healing. Yeah. I really love so much. I mean, all of what you said, but especially that first part of like acknowledging your own shit first, that it's, Mm -hmm. I don't know, this something that I remind myself a lot um, when I'm, I don't know, triggered by someone else or, I mean, obviously sometimes an asshole is just an asshole, right? That's a Danielle Laporte thing, right? (laughs) Like this, so not everything has to be like, what's the deeper meaning in my interaction with this person? Like sometimes someone's just a jerk, right? But in, you know, if that is the exception, then looking at, I find that it's often true that the things that annoy me the most about other people or the things that kind of push my buttons the most, it's usually a reflection of something that I am not comfortable with about myself or it like Mm -hmm. somehow is playing on that. And I see a lot of, you know, parallels between like that experience and what you said about, you know, owning your own shit in order to, you know, like bear witness to someone else's pain. Totally. Yeah, totally. It's the things that we don't like in other people that we don't like in ourselves. The things that we love in other people are the things that are usually in ourselves that we haven't owned yet. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, even in terms of, uh, 
you know, anyone that someone would cite as like a mentor or a teacher or an inspiration or a role model, like there's something about their gifts that, and I've heard this mm-hmm. said before, that like it's a latent thing in you that just hasn't come out yet, right? There's a reason that you're drawn to that person as kind of like your teacher. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so something that I have to ask you about before we start to wrap up, <laughs> when we were um, chatting off the air before we started recording, um, you mentioned that you are in the bathtub throughout the duration of this conversation. So please tell me, because I have to, obviously we're not on, we're not doing this on video, Skype, um, but one of the things that I say to, obviously, you know, this to people who are going to be on the show, you know, wear headphones, do whatever. And I clarify that it's audio only. Right. So, you know, I think my line <laughs> is feel free to wear your comfiest pajamas or, you know, whatever. And I have never had someone be in the bathtub. So <laughs> tell me, tell me what that's about. Well, it's, it's multiple levels, right? So fundamentally baths are very nourishing for me. I, I love heat and warm water and I love just being held in by water. Um, and I also, as I mentioned earlier, have some physical challenges and limitations. I had brain surgery. Uh, it'll be five years this June. So four and a half years ago and, um, recovery was hard. Recovery was really hard. And I'm, I'm house sitting for my mother right now. And she has this glorious, luxurious, deep jacuzzi bathtub. And that's where I did my recovery from, from surgery. And I took a bath every day in this bathtub um, for two months. And, and sometimes my baths were three, five hours long because it was the only thing during that time that made me feel better. I would wake up sometimes in like un- inexplicable rage inexplicable sadness because, you know, when your brain gets tinkered with stuff just happens. Um, and, and being held and, oh, so the bath plus lush bath bombs. Yes, 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 yes. So I have big blue today with like half, two pounds of Epsom salt dumped in the bathtub. Like it just, it, it feels like home to me. Lush. I will always love lush for, for being so therapeutic during that, um, time, but, but I want it to be someplace that I felt most like myself when we talked. So that's why, (laughs) that's why I'm in the bathtub. You are brave to do electronic recording things in the bathtub. Uh, no, that's amazing because everything that you just said about taking baths, I, I couldn't agree more. It's like, it's my favorite activity. I think, I think taking baths is my favorite activity really. And I also have the lush bath bombs, but there's just something yeah, the the warm water, the feeling of being held, it's a really a soothing thing. Like when I'm really experiencing a lot of anxiety or, you know, depression or things like that, it's always pretty much the first thing that my sweet husband will suggest. Like, why don't you take a bath? And just mm-hmm. always, I mean, it's not a fix all, right? But it always, I feel better than beforehand. Always, always, always. It's almost to the point where it's crazy. Like it shouldn't be that simple, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> why is it? But you think about it, we are, we, our first home is water for nine months, Mm-hmm. Or not water, but, you know, ambiotic fluids. So same difference. So it it makes sense that this is where you feel good and held and supported and nurtured because that's what happened your first home. Yeah. Well, so this is the first Real Talk Radio episode that is coming to you live from the bathtub. So <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Um, that's a really fun place to start to wrap up. And the way that we end these are with what we call community questions. So there are questions that the Real Talk Radio listeners want me to ask of all of our eight guests of, you know, whatever given season. So we have nine kind of random questions if you are down to answer nine questions. I'm down. What's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast? Ooh. 
oh, so many things have just like washed through my mind. Um, hmm. I love oatmeal and I love cream and wheat, but I love them when they have like all kinds of nuts and agave and coconut flake, like all kinds of multiple textured things inside of them with like maybe a hemp milk or oat milk with them. I like a warm, chunky breakfast. (laughs) Yes. Amen to all of that. I love any meal where it's like you put a bunch of stuff in other stuff. Like, yes. <laughs> like I like the combination of textures and temperatures. Like if it's a salad, like I want cool, crunchy vegetables, but I want like warm quinoa or chickpeas. I want, you know, this, like I love like soft avocado. There's just something that's very, I find comforting to eat kind of a one bowl meal that has lots of different stuff going on in it. I'm coming to your house for lunch. I mean, listen, you are welcome here anytime. I have a bathtub. It's not as deep as this one. That's that's funny. I I mean, extreme first world problem. The only thing that I don't love about our house is that I want that like deep soaking tub. Whenever you watch those Mm -hmm. HGTV shows, right? And they have this amazing, and that's all all I want in my life. That's my biggest first world problem. Um, So speaking of problems, question number two, what is the biggest challenge or obstacle that you are facing right now, either personally or professionally? What is it? something that you're working through? Thank you for asking that question. Um, as I mentioned, I have some physical challenges. So in the aftermath of the brain surgery, I was pretty atypical, asymptomatic, atypically asymptomatic before the surgery. And now I have all of these aftermaths of the surgery, including energy and pain and chronic pain and all kinds of stuff. So I I'm working on strengthening my body and healing continually. And I'm also super ambitious and I'm a Taurus and I'm a workhorse and I just work, 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 work. And I'm learning actively when it's time to close, when it's time to shut off the computer, when it's time to have a closing work hour, which I just realized yesterday I actually need to have, um, in honor of my body, in honor of like restoration and recovery and all those pieces. Cause I'm, I, I'm ready to get this um, relaunch back up and back out into the world. So that's the challenge for me is how do I honor my body? How do I rest and still get things done? Yeah. And still also honor your ambition. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that's another one of the things that like, there's no Like, it would be so easy if there was just one answer, right? Like, do these six things. Like, it's just any, like, real thing that we're working through. It's just, I feel like, a continuous checking in with yourself in real time. What you need today might be very different from what you need, you know, a week from now. Exactly. Mm, Exactly. Which, like, believe me, it's not what I want to be the answer. Like, that's like, (laughs) it's not, I don't want that. I I want, yeah, the easy thing. But, I mean, it's not actually what we need. Um, So the next question, which regular habit or behavior would you say has most contributed to your happiness in recent years? Mm. Which regular habit? I'm pretty... All of my habits contribute to my happiness. I don't want to do anything that doesn't contribute to my happiness. Oh, I like that. That's a good answer. (laughs) So it's hard for me to choose one because I, my life is very intentional. Um, But I will say in the end of, towards the end of last year, I hired someone who um, makes me food and that contributes to my happiness because I don't like to cook, but I like to eat. Mm. See, I feel like there's so much unbelievable freedom and power in 
acknowledging what's true for you without judgment and then to the best of your ability, meeting your own needs, right? Like yes. we, have, we have so much and I'm completely just like putting my own stuff on you with what I'm about to say. So this isn't like about you at all, but I could so see the internal dialogue in a situation like that. Well, I should just cook for myself or this, I shouldn't spend money on just like the things that come into our head about why we either don't deserve the thing or why it should be different or what it means about us, that this is a thing that we want or need. Like there's so much chatter and so many stories, I think, mm. but being able to be like, no, this would make me feel good. I need this thing. I don't care if, you know, such and such person doesn't understand I'm going to I have the ability to give myself this thing. I'm going to give myself this thing. Like there's something beautiful about that. Yeah. It's, it's like, yes, is also a complete sentence. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Um, So continuing on with that topic of, you know, habits or I don't know, rituals, whatever, what's one kind of daily or regular thing that you would love to add to your life or maybe that you've been curious about or thinking of experimenting with? Oh, I, as I mentioned, I'm a yoga teacher and I'm not taking yoga and forest yoga. It's a particular kind of yoga has been very nourishing and healing for me. And I'm not practicing enough because the one yoga forest yoga studio is far out. And I just haven't built that into what I was saying earlier about that balance, that self care replenishment. So I would love, 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 love to be doing daily forest yoga. That would, I know that would feel so good. Um, what is forest yoga? <laughs> so Anna Forest, it's her name. Uh, you, oh, please put her in the show notes. No She's problem. So warrior, fierce woman. Um, can I just say a little about her? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so Anna is one of the most resilient women that I've ever known. She was prostituted out by her mother as a child. Had um, grew up with. Uh, what's the word? Um, Epilepsy was addicted to alcohol by the time she was 12, was addicted to, I mean, she has the story. She has lived this life and wanted to create a kind of yoga using breath and movement and intention that would heal. And it's healed her physically, emotionally, and it heals so many. It's a powerful practice that's really about harnessing breath, movement, intention to heal physical and emotional trauma and wounds. It's you know, when we get off this call, I'm going to be Googling her because (laughs) okay, I'll put that in the show notes for sure. Um, Tell us the best advice that you have ever received, or maybe not even the best, but good advice that, you know, you think of often. Mm. Mm. Can we come back to this one? I'm going to let it cook a little. Yeah, absolutely. What's, what's something that you really love about yourself? Me. Hmm. Simple answer. <laughs> That's good. Just gonna let that. Just gonna let that sit there. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you pull yourself out of like a funk or a rut? Like, what works to get you reengaged, either in your work or your goals or your devotional practices when you're just feeling really like blah and I don't wanna. Like you said, baths are so medicinal for me. Um, naps, going to sleep, if and eating. If if I'm hungry or tired or cold or wet or any combination of that, it's no good for anybody. And, and so sometimes just going to bed, closing the computer, going to bed, not having to figure anything out just helps just shutting down. Um, and not having to stay on, but just like giving myself permission to unplug. Yeah. And being able to acknowledge 
through intuition or through, you know, just knowing yourself, what are my actual needs in this moment? Mm-hmm. Right. Which I think is easier said than done. Mm-hmm. But being able to say, oh, I'm just hungry. Right? Like, it's so yeah. funny how, <laughs> right. like, I look at sometimes I'm like spiraling out of control and projecting and everything's the worst. And it, like, no, you're, you're just hungry. <laughs> everything's <laughs> exactly. fine. Just like have some toast. <laughs> I don't know. Exactly. Oh, the That's human it. brain is amazing. Um, <laughs> so which two or three books of any genre would you say have either had a really big impact on you or that you recommend or reread the most? I was hoping you would ask me this question. I ask everyone. This is my, this is the favorite question because <laughs> I'm an obsessive reader. So give me all the books to read is basically what I'm saying. <laughs> so my favorite book, which is kind of like my Bible is, um, by a woman named Ntozake Shange. And she, this isn't my favorite book, but she also wrote for colored girls who, who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough, which is her most famous book. But my favorite book of hers is called Cypress, Sassafras, and Indigo. And it's so affirming. It's about these three sisters and, and, and Indigo is the youngest and she's this magical, magical girl who talks to her dolls and has tea parties and, and is very intuitive in all these different ways. Um, and it honors it honors magical girls and honors magical black girls and honors magical Southern people. It's just beautiful. Highly recommend highly, highly It has spells in it that she does. I just, okay. That sounds lovely. That definitely sounds like a complete departure from everything I've been reading lately and that I should definitely read that. So yes. Anything else? Yes. A second one is Audre Lorde's sister outsider. Uh, Audre Lorde changed my life. Uh, one of my first kind of feminist books that I ever read because I was a women's studies major. So this was one of the things that was assigned, but she's irreverent. She's audacious. She's bold. She's clear. And I love the complexity of like sister outsider being both an outsider and an insider at the same time and holding this, holding the space between. And it's a collection of her essays on, and she tackles big stuff, big, big stuff. And it's, yeah, one of the most important books of my life. Mm, okay. And anything else or? Yes. <laughs> yeah. You're like, let me tell you. Yes. All right. <laughs> I, I, reading and writing have been my thing since I've been reading since I was two and a half. So I've just love reading my whole life. I could read all the time. Um, but my, my other one is Women Who Run With the Wolves by yeah. Clarissa Piola Estes, who's just seminal book of everything good. Yes, I could not agree with you more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so circling back, the advice question. Any anything come to mind for you of good advice you have received, or the flip side of that, advice that you have ignored? Oh, oh, um, hmm. there's so much. So I don't know if this is. I'm okay. I'm going to give you both in one answer. Okay. Uh, my mom used to say. You know, my she was a single mom most of my life, paid for college out of pocket and private school, all these things that were not cheap. I was not a cheap child to raise. And her mantra for me was just get off my paycheck. (laughs) (laughs) And and I kind of ignored that because I was like, 
you're the one paying for things. I'm not telling you to pay for things. I don't, I, I'm just going to keep figuring out my life. So that, and there was this sense of guilt, like, because I've paid for this, I want you to have a career. I want you to get this salary job. I want you to do something that's going to pay for your own way. Um, and get off my paycheck, which of course I don't, wouldn't want to be a, a financial burden to her in adulthood, but, um, that was something I just didn't take on as my shit. That was like, I'm like, like, that's your shit. You can stop paying for things. I don't, right. you know? Mm-hmm. And then she had a spiritual revelation and her new mantra became do what makes your heart sing. And so that's what I started to listen. <laughs> You're like, I choose this message. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's lovely. Um, so the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take in the next week, what would it be? Mm. Breathe mm. and trust your truth. Breathe and trust your truth. I'm going to put that, that needs to get written down somewhere for me. <laughs> like tattoo that on my face, please. Um, that is beautiful. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect? Um, sisterfire.com is my digital sanctuary, my digital home. Instagram, I also love. Um, but it's all getting changed, not Instagram, but sisterfire, you can always find me there. The name will change shortly, but it'll redirect. Okay. Okay. Fabulous. Well, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for talking to us from the bathtub. This has been a (laughs) delightful conversation. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm honored and very, very grateful to be here. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Megan. Hi, Megan. Hi, Nicole. So happy to be here. We are going to play Would You Rather. Are you ready for that? I hope so. (laughs) It's my favorite game. Okay. Would you rather live in a home with no electricity or no running water? Oh, my God. Oh, dear. Um, I am going to go. I would rather live in a home with no electricity. Being in a place where I or actually. Oh, man, I'm going back and forth. I'll, I'll still say no electricity because not being able to, like, take showers and baths and, like, wash the dishes and stuff. That sounds kind of really, really bad. I think somehow I would figure out how to do stuff with no electricity some way, somehow. Yeah, I feel the same. My follow-up question to the, I mean, obviously always I like want to pick these apart, but they're supposed to be hard for a reason, but with no running water, it would depend on like what the water situation was, right? Like, is it a well on your street? Like, what's the community, right? Like, is it just no water at all? I don't know, but I agree. I feel like the electricity things, a lot of what I would miss would be like entertainment-y convenience things that I could learn to figure out, you know what I mean? Like a way to do without. So I agree with you. Right. Yeah. You could go elsewhere for like, you know, charging a laptop or using your phone and stuff like that. So I think I would figure it out better without electricity. Yeah. So, okay. The next one, would you rather only be able to wear lavender colored clothing for the rest of your life or never be able to get another haircut ever again? Hmm. 
I would rather wear lavender clothes for the rest of my life. My hair is super curly, and if it gets kind of long and unruly, it's a little ridiculous. Uh, and the girl who cuts my hair, her name is Danielle, and she's like a wizard. Um, and I don't know what I would do without Danielle in my life. <laughs> Shout out to Danielle. Um, I Yeah, I feel like the lavender clothing, while not flattering on me personally at all, could at least become like, that's your thing, I guess. But I yes, after... Yeah, exactly. That's you're that lady. Um, yeah, awesome. Okay. The last one. Would you rather be the absolute best at something that no one takes seriously or be average at something that's well respected? Oh, wow. This is like a deep one. I know, right? <laughs> I will say I would rather be average at something that's well respected. I think respect is something I, I kind of deeply value in others. Like if I have, if I respect somebody that kind of elevates that person to a certain level, even if it's, even if it's for something that's just kind of like, Oh, you know, you're really good. You're like a good friend or, um, you're, you know, good in your relationship or whatever. I think that's respect is something I really value. Um, and just being the best at something that people don't take seriously. Like I, I at the end of the day, I, the, as much as we say like, oh, other people's opinions don't matter, blah, blah, blah. Like I still can kind of be deeply affected by what people think of me. So I am going to say, well, uh, average is something people that respect. Interesting. So my caveat for this one is it depends on whether it's my profession or my hobby, because if it's mm-hmm. like profession, I think I would go with average and well-respected because I feel like you can still make a living doing that, right? But if it's like, if I had the chance to be like the best ever at something, even if it was something ridiculous, like who knows, maybe it becomes something that other people appreciate at some point. I don't know. Like, I think it would be fun to be the best at something that's really ridiculous, assuming that that didn't affect your livelihood. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a really, that's a really interesting question. I like it. So why don't you introduce yourself to the rest of the listeners real quick. Tell everyone where you live and one thing that you are totally obsessed with lately. My name is Meg Cassidy. I live in Connecticut and I am totally obsessed lately with listening to old Ed Sheeran. He's one of those guys that I would listen to his songs on the radio. I'm just like, oh, this song is pretty good. But then when I listen to some of his albums, I'm just like, oh my God, it is so good. And now I just want to listen to Ed Sheeran all day long. All right. Maybe I will have to do that also. I'm always looking for fun new things to listen to. So (laughs) that's awesome. Um, Meg, okay. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a small and powerful pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show and what you love most about being kind of in our community and getting the bonus content, whatever you want to talk about. Yeah, for sure. I chose to support the community just because I love your work. I've loved it for a really long time. It has helped me start running. It helped me change my eating habits a few years ago. And when you started the podcast, it kind of became something totally different than what I was listening to podcast wise, both in length and the quality and the interesting levelness of the guests. Um, people like, uh, Kate Grace and Melissa Beaver and so many other people. Um, I've the, the woman who was on, who was talking about motherhood, her name is escaping me right now, but 
all of their perspectives are so valuable and kind of thought provoking that it really just kind of, there have been certain things that have made me take action on certain things or, or follow them on social media and kind of bring them into my atmosphere of what I'm interested in. So it's been wonderful for follow the, you know, finding new people to stalk on the internet, but also kind of <laughs> thinking about, um, kind of where you're at in your life and how you can maybe improve your life, even if it's just a little bit at a time. I love that. I mean, everyone that you just gave shout outs to are people that I especially love. So yeah, I am with you on how much the guests of this show like totally bring it. I'm just like such a fangirl for everyone on the show. <laughs> like for me, it's amazing. For sure. Um, and then what's your favorite thing about our little community? The community is really, I find that everyone is kind of really supportive of each other, which is totally wonderful. And, uh, you know, no matter what your goals are, there's kind of varying interests and projects that people are working on. And everyone is just kind of has their heart in a really good place, I feel like, which can be kind of hard to find sometimes. But it's been really interesting to kind of see where everyone's at and um, what they're working on. And it's when you surround yourself with that sort of thing, I feel like it can only lead to good things in your own life. Yeah. One of my favorite things was when we did, um, at the end of 2016 and everyone was sharing like the thing from the year that they were most proud of. Basically it was such like a fun, positive atmosphere. I feel like everyone was so supportive of each other and it was awesome to see like what people had accomplished and what was most important for everyone and like seeing how wide ranging those things were, but that, I don't know, everyone was really accepted and supported felt really good to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost kind of like having, you know, a bunch of friends together in a room and just everyone is just very much very supportive of each other. Totally. Well, thank you for being brave and for joining me for this. Thank you. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, and if you want over 30 hours of bonus content with new stuff added every month, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and I can't wait to get to know you better behind the scenes in our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 